Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Enoch Pratt Free Library. On behalf of our Chief Executive Officer, Dr. Carla Hayden, I'm Roswell Encina, Director of Communications here for the Pratt Library. We are very pleased to have all of you here tonight for the latest installment of our Talking About Race lecture series. This is all made possible with our wonderful partners in this lecture series, the Open Society Baltimore. Let's please give them a round of applause here. For, from the first lecture with Gwen Eiffel and Sherilyn Eiffel, this lecture series definitely hit a nerve and has received a lot of attention, not only in Baltimore, but in the entire region. Tonight, we are much honored to have two special guests to guide us through another memorable conversation, authors Rich Benjamin and Tim Wise. Please welcome, to Baltimore. Please welcome them here to Baltimore. To introduce our special guest tonight is the director of the Open Society Institute Baltimore. Please welcome back to the Central Library, Mrs. Diana Morris. Tonight we will not, as you will see, will not have a moderator, but the uh, two speakers will talk and have a conversation with each other, but they will then ask for uh, questions from all of you here in the audience. Rich Benjamin is the um, author, and he's on my left, is the author of Searching for Watopia, An Improbable Journey to the Heart of White America. He is a senior fellow at Demos, a nonpartisan, multi-issue think tank. His social and political commentary is featured on newspapers nationwide, on NPR, on Fox Radio, in the bio, in blogosphere, and in many scholarly venues. Rich's background is in academia, politics, and media. He earned his BA in political science from Wesleyan University and his PhD in modern thought and literature from Stanford University. From 2001 to 2002, he was visiting scholar at Columbia University School of Law. Rich's public service includes operating as a senior advisor to Why Tuesday, which is a bipartisan grassroots campaign to increase civic participation. He also serves on the advisory board of the Roosevelt Institution. Tim Weiss is a prominent anti-racist writer and activist who speaks nationally and trains teachers as well as corporate, government, media, entertainment, military, and law enforcement officials on methods of dismantling racism in their institutions. He's the author of multiple books. His most recent is Between Barack and a Hard Place, Challenging Racism, Privilege, and Denial in the Age of Obama. He's taught at Smith College School of Social Work and served as an advisor to the Fisk University Race Relations Institute. In the early 1990s, he was the associate director of the Louisiana Coalition Against Racism and Nazism, the largest of the many groups responsible for the political defeat of neo-Nazi David Duke. Tim received his BA from Tulane University and anti-racism training from the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond, both in New Orleans. And he received the 2002 National Youth Advocacy Coalition's Social Justice Impact Award in recognition of his contribution to the struggle for equity. So please join me now in welcoming our two speakers.
that's on you. Hello. Thank you for coming, first of all. As was mentioned in the introduction, there's a lot of things you could be doing tonight, and I'm glad you're here for this discussion. I want to quickly begin by saying how much I love public libraries, and I'm glad this public library has hosted this forum, and I don't think it's a coincidence that we have such a big integrated audience in this library or that the space is so physically beautiful as it is. Some of us are old enough to remember the Dewey Decimal System and the card catalog, <laughs> but some of us are younger and remember that the only time, I remember the Dewey Decimal System, <laughs> but some of us realize that before broadband access was commonly available, the only place I could job search or search for internships where I could have internet access was in a public library. So I love public libraries, and uh, thank you to Enoch Pratt Library. I want to begin my remarks by showing a short video clip, and the simple reason I'm showing this short video clip is to contextualize the remarks I'm about to make, primarily in case audience members are wondering how I know what I know or why I might think what I think. I embarked on a two-year journey to the fastest-growing, widest communities in America, and the video clip talks about that. When those best places to live pop up at you on your web browser, do you ever notice how white they are? I decided to embark this 26,000-mile journey because I just had to know one thing. How and where will white Americans live to achieve their American dream? You, you f go and visit white enclaves all around the country, and you bring statistics to attention that there's been a huge amount of white flight. And one of the startling things I've come upon, this country is as segregated residentially and educationally as it was in 1970. Everybody's white, but everybody's, um, you know, very accepting, and uh, we don't have any problems. County. Warren County in general has such low crime. Lots of people don't even lock their doors, even in today's day and age. As people of color, especially immigrants, live increasingly in suburbs and cities, White people are living in towns and exurban areas that are predominantly, even extremely white. You're going to get prejudice no matter where you go, but up here you're going to get a lot less. Is there really a, a contradiction between being white nationalist, Aryan nation, and ritzy? It, there's not a contradiction per se. I mean, ritzy people in that community do not say anything racist, and they're perfectly friendly in that sense. Back when I first came out, there was mostly one type of person here. However, Aryan nations will find a place to feel comfortable among that social and racial homogeneity. They've merged with the anti-immigration nativist narrative to spark a lot of fear. By 2042, white people will no longer be the American majority. Half of the kids in this country under five years old are minorities. By far the greatest number. You know what that means? 25 years, and the majority of the population is Hispanic. Do your duty. Make more babies. What is happening now to white men right now is exactly what was done to black folks. Is exactly what was done to black folks for you. No, they're not being lynched, Pat. They're really, they're not being lynched. 
But do you understand no. what the New York Times wants? They want to break down the white Christian male power structure, of which you're a part, and so am I. And they want to bring in millions of foreign nationals to basically break down the structure that we have. So if you would, I mean, is there a problem? And as far as these people in the, their white topias, do they consider there's a problem? They don't need policing. They've, they've kept the problem outside their doors. In fact, many people aren't aware of it. They move to these communities with nary a thought of how segregated it is. And implicitly, they just assume the qualities that attracted them, friendliness, comfort, security, are whiteness in and of itself. Many people don't even give it a second thought. And is the federal government got any role to, to mess with them? Well, what government does and doesn't do is how it zones. When you zone in a certain way, and it's explicitly told by certain county organizations, is we want the renters out. We want apartment complexes out. And that's code words for immigrants or lower income whites or blacks. Given all that we as a nation went through during the civil rights struggle, it is hard for me to accept that the result of those efforts was to create an, an America that is more prosperous, more positively race conscious, and yet is voluntarily socially segregated. The man himself speaking is the new Attorney General of the United States well, of America. I, I, I don't, that, uh, I'm, I'm really flummoxed. Guys our age, yeah. we don't look at race. According to some people, the election of our first black president could make the situation better. Other people say that it might sweep racial issues under the rug. There's a problem for everyone involved when we were segregated by class and by race in such a way. And what I fear is, with the election of Obama, America's shaking out in two versions. One, we could call Obama Nation, slap happiness, diversity, yet still residentially segregated, versus Whitetopia. So, to conclude in a nutshell, especially for the folks in the back who may not see that, I just went on a 27,000-mile journey to the fastest-growing, whitest communities in this country. I call them Whitetopia. And two statistics really animate this journey. The first is that by 2042, white people will no longer be the majority in America. And the second statistic is that this country, residentially and educationally, is as segregated today as it was in 1970. So if that is a benchmark... Uh, we have not made progress. Well, first off, I just want to uh, say that I'm really honored to be on the stage with Rich, and I, particularly because you had some courage to go into some communities that I, as a white person, frankly, uh, <laughs> I got to tell you, I don't want to go to these places because there's no topia to them for me. But I, I'm glad that you did it, and I'm glad that uh, that you had the fortitude to go in and. and and, and do this kind of research because I don't think it's been done uh, very much. There's a lot of research on suburbanization, and this is, you know, one step beyond that, which I think is sort of that new trend that we haven't really talked about, that demographers haven't really talked about. Um, when I was asked about, the, you know, this forum and the, and the topic for us to discuss, this issue of, you know, how does white America talk about race, and I was sort of at a loss because I've been white um, you know, a really long time, and in the... In the uh, uh, you don't realize how long until you're asked to sit on a stool for an hour, uh, and then you realize it's really long, um, 41 years. And in the, in the 41 years of my whiteness, um, what I have observed is that we don't talk very much about race, but that in our silence, 
we speak volumes. And that is to say that a lot of times you say more through not talking, right, than you say by talking. And there are a couple of reasons for that. On the one hand, uh, whiteness has, you know, historically meant that I don't have to know anything about this topic as it relates to people of color in their lives. I can be completely oblivious to the way that race plays a role both for people of color and for myself. Historically, I haven't had to think about, as a white person, the way that my identity is racialized and therefore my experiences and my perceptions are. Now, what's interesting and what I think Rich is uncovering, right, is that this, this rap that some of us have put out there for many years who do this work, which is that, you know, this old James Baldwin line that whiteness means never having to think about it, that that's starting to change in a, in a, in a very interesting way that white folks are for the first time being confronted with the reality that we too have a racialized identity. And the thing that is creating that awareness, right, is I, I think there are four things, and they're sort of a perfect storm for white anxiety, okay? One is uh, the demographic change that Rich was speaking to. The fact that by 2040, approximately, whites will be uh, a plurality, but no longer a majority of the American public. Secondly, the presence of a black president. The most uh, visible, symbolic image of America that's beamed across the globe doesn't look like uh, what white folks in particular have assumed was normal. Uh, The third thing is the economic meltdown, which for the first time in 75 years is confronting white folks, not as much as it is people of color, as the New York Times piece that you heard referenced makes clear, but white folks as a group are facing, for the first time in three generations, potentially, double-digit unemployment. That is new for white Americans as a group. It ain't new for black folk. It ain't new for Latino folk. It's not new for Native peoples. But for white folks, that is some new crazy stuff. And so you've got some people who have gotten so used to a sense that they could tell their kids, you're going to do better than than we did, and we did better than our parents. People of color have never taken for granted that that was going to be true in this country. White folks did. So when you no longer get to take that for granted, that scares the hell out of you, frankly. And then finally, we have a popular culture that is thoroughly multicultural, right? Even the white folks who were icons within popular culture, right, even like the country music stars do records with hip-hop stars and with rock stars. And so even all of that is so cross-pollinated now that you've got all these images of what is the sort of prototype typical American today is very different than what it would have looked like even 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30. That scares a lot of white folks who are not ready for that. And I'm not even talking about racist white folks in the overt sense. I'm talking about white folks who simply have gotten so used to a sense of normalcy that anything that upsets that drives them sort of Uh, batty. You know, you just sort of get this sense of the world has been turned upside down, that whiteness doesn't have the same premium or what W.E.B. Du Bois called the psychological wage of whiteness has been diminished, right? Used to be that working class white folks could content themselves by saying, well, I ain't got much, but at least I'm not black. But now a black guy's the president. You're like, what the hell? You know, like, like, like the psychological wage, that doesn't even, it never paid the bill, but at least it made me feel better. Now I don't even have that, man. Inflation uh, has, has affected psychological wages, you know. And so now you have people that are sort of in that stage where they are for the first time having to think about their identity. And what's interesting is it sort of flips the script on who has coping skills and who doesn't right? In a sense, people of color have always had to have coping skills around being racialized because to be black or brown in America is to know that you're racialized by a system and you have to figure out how to cope and survive and thrive under that. White folks have always been able to just be like the three-year-old who doesn't want to listen to his parents and he's like, la, 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 la. You know, we don't have to listen to anything that we don't want to listen to. And now all of a sudden, 
things have changed, not as much as some would have us believe for sure, but enough to where it creates a sense of uncertainty and anxiety. And so now white folks are learning to talk about race and we're not real good at it, right? Because we've never had practice. So you go back, I mean, you know, you'd think we would have gotten this. Uh, Go back and read the Gallup polls from 1963, from 1962. If you want to see how white folks talk about race and how much denial we have collectively been in for a very long time, All you have to do is read those polls. Because if I were to ask you right now, any white person in America, anyone in this room who's white, anyone out there who's white, if you think that, you know, black folks had equal opportunity in 1963, everyone would go, well, no. And we all know that. In retrospect, it's easy to say. But in 1963, two out of three white folks said, oh, sure, black folks are treated fully equally in housing, jobs, uh, criminal justice, education. 1962, Gallup asked white folks, do you think that black children have equal educational opportunity? And 87% of whites said yes. It's almost nine in 10, and that was in 1962, right? So at some level, white folks have never known how to have this conversation because we've had the, the luxury of being oblivious. And some folks, and some of these folks that Rich is encountering, it seems to me, want to remain very oblivious and want to remain very removed from this conversation. And so what we've got to figure out as a society is to what extent we are going to really critique and break down this movement that Rich is seeing, because even though I think it's ultimately a self-destructive and unsustainable movement that these folks are engaged in, it is going to define the contours of race and race relations to some extent in our country for the next 20 years, I would think. So thank you all so much for being here, and I appreciate the opportunity to share with you this evening. Thank you. What Tim and I decided about 10 minutes ago is that (laughs) we're going to have a general conversation and then we'll open it up to audience Q&A. And I just want to respond to some of the remarks that he's made before asking him a question. He used two words at least once. And by the way, I'm honored to be on this stage because for all of you who have taken courses in whiteness studies or ethnic studies know Tim's work, which now people are looking at whiteness more frequently, but when he started looking at it, that was trailblazing. So, yeah, please. So the comment I want to make on his comment before asking him a question is this. To my experience, going on this journey, I immersed myself for two years in three communities, St. George, Utah, Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, in Forsyth County, Georgia, my experience is that white people hated or reluctant to talk about race for three main reasons, which touch on some of his comments. The first is out of a sense of racial fatigue, a sense that, oh my goodness, Rich, do we really have to have another conversation on race? And I have to add, this would be a great point to add it, I was warmly received in a lot of these communities. I mean, I would host dinner parties, I would go to dinner parties, people would send me home with a doggy bag of pork chops and banana nut bread. They say, oh my goodness, please come join our poker crew, come go golfing with us. And so in the book, there's a lot... And they'll be telling white people that story for the next 20 years. (laughs) That they they did that for you. Well, I like to think I'm that impressionable, but I'm not. They will will use that as as currency for two decades. Absolutely. No. I I take that that hospitality in most cases at face value. And so the reason, A that I'm mentioning, 
is the sense of racial fatigue. I think a lot of people's eyes glaze over when they hear just the statistics that Diana Morris was reading. They said, oh my goodness, more statistics on racial disparities in education, incarceration, etc. So that's the first reason is a sense of racial fatigue. The second reason I report is a sense of what they perceive as ethics, right? They perceive themselves to be disciples of Martin Luther King, and they have bought the line, believe in the content of a person's character and not the color of their skin, and so they think it's unseemly or untoward to talk about race. And so that comes to a colorblind neglect. And the third reason, I think, that there's a lot of denial about race is just, I would say, what's becoming a yearning for a post-racial America in this day and age. And so the question becomes, as the demographics change, what are the conversations that we're going to have about race? And so my question now to Tim is, what do you think the prospects for immigration reform would be, and how would you take the conversation of race beyond black and white? Well, uh, I mean, the prospects for reform are going to depend on sort of who controls the way this topic is framed. I mean, right now, those who would frame the immigration discussion have done a pretty masterful job of, of trying to convince us that it isn't about race, um, that it isn't about that at all. And so those people who would shut, and I won't say our borders because they're only concerned about one, of course, on the southern part of the country. I was just in Nova Scotia. I didn't see any Minutemen on boats shooting at Canadians coming to the United States, nor do I think I ever would. Um, but I think that unless we who are concerned about racial equity and, and racism, both at the personal and the institutional level, successfully make clear that this is not about illegality and legality, because it isn't. Because if you want to make, uh, if, you, if, you know, if, if that's your hang-up, well, I just think you should come the right way, like our ancestors. First of all, my great-grandfather came here from Russia in 1907. There were no laws keeping him from doing so. Therefore, to say that he didn't break the law is no great shakes. That's not like he gets a pat on the back. There was no law for him to break. It was legal for him to come. So first of all, when people say that, they're fudging the historical facts. Secondly, if your concern is legality, I can make all immigration legal tomorrow. You know what you do? You just make the rule that what you got to do to come here is you fill out a postcard and you send it in and there's a background check and three days later you're in. And everybody's legal. I guarantee you people will wait 72 hours rather than get shot at in the desert to come to this country. But no one is going to propose that because they don't want those folks to come here, whether it is legal or whether it is illegal. So let's be honest and let's recognize what this is. If these were people, I mean, 40% of all undocumented immigrants in this country didn't cross any border illegally. They came here on a work visa or an educational visa. They overstayed it. A disproportionate number of those are of European ancestry. No one cares, right? So this is about race and it is about an attempt. You saw the Bill O'Reilly clip. You put that in there. It's a brilliant thing to put in that clip because here's Bill O'Reilly saying, and then you've got, uh, what's his name? The, the, the blonde guy whose name, John, uh, John, uh, Gibson. John Gibson, right? Make more babies. I mean, what they're saying is ultimately just a more sort of watered down version of white nationalism, which is we're losing our country. This is our country. Pat Buchanan essentially said it, right, during the Sonia Sotomayor hearings. He said, uh, well, the reason we've had all the Supreme Court slots is because we pretty much built the damn place. I mean, that's what he said. We did all the fighting. We did all the dying. We did all the creating. None of this is historically accurate, as a matter of fact. 
and Pat Buchanan did none of the fighting and none of the building and other than, you know, whatever fights he got in on the streets of D.C. growing up, which he likes to talk about a lot. He didn't fight, you know, he has done nothing. But this is what these guys are about. They are about ultimately recasting the country in these white nationalist terms. And one of the things that James Baldwin told us so many years ago was that America was never a white country. We had the luxury of believing that we were. We were never a white country. Uh, and the fact that some people have tried to cast it that way in every generation doesn't make it so. So those of us who are concerned about equity and freedom and justice have to make sure that we understand that this conversation, this attack on brown peoples, is an attack on all peoples of color, and it is an attack on all working people. Because what is being told to working class people right now is these folks come and take your job. But the reality of the matter, two things. Number one, it ain't your job until you have it. Right? So nobody's taken anything. Uh, you're not entitled to any particular job. Secondly, uh, the idea that companies who send jobs elsewhere are responsible seems to escape our recognition. In other words, they took the job. No, no, no. The rich person gave the job to somebody else to exploit their labor, to not have to pay benefits, to not have to pay, environment, you know, uh, pay for environmental protection, labor standards, etc. We have to recognize that working class people, whether they are white, black, Latino, Asian, indigenous peoples, uh, peoples around the globe, have a commonality of interest. If we're going to have laws that allow goods to cross borders, which is what we do with free trade agreements, if we're going to have laws that allow capital to cross borders in search of the highest return on investment, which every uh, capitalist is going to demand that we keep borders open to that, then to say that we're going to close borders to labor, understand the economics of that basic economic principles will tell you that that will inevitably shift the game against labor and toward capital. If I can move my money around and sell my goods anywhere, but you're chained to your country of origin, you're screwed. And I think unless we make that clear to working class people of all colors, what we're going to see is brown folk and black folk and working class white folk sort of killing one another, fighting one another over the pieces of a pie that not one of them owns. And that's what I think we're seeing right now with working people fighting one another rather than working in solidarity together. He doesn't sound like his, the prospects are good. I mean, you're no, not optimistic. No, I, not right now, but, I mean, again, it's all sort of a matter of how we move forward. I, I would say that the prospects are not good if we're waiting for the President of the United States to say that what I just said. If you're waiting for the President or a U.S. Senator or a Congressperson or any major political figure to say any of that, then you'll be waiting a very long time. That's not what Presidents do. And so that's for us to do. It's not about waiting around, you know, for, for leaders to say these things because they never say them. It is about what people at the grassroots level decide to do and then force leaders to follow what, what we're saying and what we're demanding, right? Good. So, so my question to you, I mean, I have a ton, but the one I'm really curious about, you know, for, for years, um, the researchers have found that when, whenever you do a survey of racial attitudes of white people, if the person conducting that survey is a person of color, mm -hmm. white folks straight up lie. I'm not trying to be rude, pejorative, mean, call white people out. I love me some white people. My, my wife is white. My two <laughs> girls are white. My mama is white. I'm good with white people, but, but, but we lie. That's what the research says. So when you have a black person asking white folks about their views about race, a Latino asking white people their views about race, an Asian American asking white people their views about race, we will lie. Now, James Baldwin also said black folks will lie to white folks too. They, you know, black folks aren't going to tell white people the truth. So we don't tell the truth across racial lines. That said, I'm interested in what you think the conversations might have been with some of the folks that you met. I've been to Forsyth. I've been to Coeur I haven't been to St. George's, uh, Utah. 
what do you think the conversation might have been and how racially copacetic and ecumenical and colorblind and we are the world might it have been if, if, if one of the white folks in this room had been, in, had been meeting with these folks rather than you who I have no doubt they were kind to. No doubt. I, I, you know, and, 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 but I'm just wondering, do you think it would have been different and what were some signs that you saw that maybe everything that you were getting from them wasn't, if anything, uh, totally on the level? What were some of the unspoken things that you picked up? Well, it's a fascinating question that all journalists deal with. Is your source telling the truth, and how do you parse what you're being told? In the case of a racial difference in my reporting, it's something I'm constantly conscious of, but the assumption that white people will lie about race to a black man is a bit problematic because race involves Latino. So I was very fascinated that many white people felt licensed to really give me their views on immigration because I'm black and I'm not Latino. Right. And the book reports fascinating attitudes and opinions about immigration. That And one of the conversations was between a woman who started the Citizens' Council Against Illegal Immigration in St. George, Utah, She had me to her house. It's a splendid $1 million mansion in the mountains of Utah, and she broke it down. She said, this is what I feel about Latinos, and this is what I feel about immigration. And some of it's not pretty according to our or my attitude and my outlook on this country. So there's that. I think that many of the white people felt licensed to tell me precisely what they feel about Latinos and Asians and immigration. Now, What did they tell me about blacks? That becomes a different story. And a lot of the book isn't about their direct attitudes about race. I can glean that from public documents, from the public history, from what was said in public or private that I get a hold of that wasn't necessarily directly said to my face. That said, some things about black people were said to my face. Uh, One thing that I mention, or I should mention, is that The communities I visited and that I immersed myself in, that's one social dynamic of the book. But I also reported uh, on America's Promise Ministry, which is a Christian identity church, and they are the avowed religious arm of Aryan nations. And so they had a Christian identity retreat, and I crashed that for three days. And so they had plenty to say about black people, Jewish people, and immigrants. So, but it's a, it's a valid, fascinating question. It's a question that anthropologists and journalists uh, constantly deal with. It's, it's basically the analysis of information on topics, whether it be, in my case, it's about race and demographics and immigration and the future and language and culture and the presidency. But in other cases, it might be about abortion or nuclear power or what have you. So it's something I'm constantly aware of. And by the way, we keep mentioning race, but there's a class dynamic. I mean, when I show up in these communities, people say class-related and unrace-related things that, you know, had my uh, jaws popping. I'll tell you one quick incident that happened to me in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, is I had befriended this guy called Ed. And uh, Ed... By the way, all the people I'm referring to are white because all the characters or the real-life sources in the book are white. Um, But Ed was living out of a rented storage unit in Coeur d'Alene because he could not afford an apartment or a house in that neighborhood. 
Now that very day, I went to a meet and greet for U.S. Senator Mike Crapo at the sprawling estate of a cattle baron. And at that meet and greet, the senator promised the gathering more tax relief. So talk about a class divide and what class means A, to the person who's being researched, but B, to the research. And that's another thing I had to contend with, not just skin color, but class and how class plays out in these communities. Because a lot of these whiteopias began as maybe pro-union, logging, mining communities, and they've been Aspenized. They're becoming basically like Aspen, Colorado. So I hope that answers your question. It does. Let me follow up with one thing, because I have spent some time in Forsyth, and I was actually in Forsyth in 87 when the, when the, the debacle, the incident, uh, took place, as you may recall, where civil rights marchers had gone into the county. Forsyth ran black folks out what year? 1913? 1912. 1912. Um, and had not had any black residents from that period until the 80s, I guess. And um, one of the things that I am always interested in, because Forsyth has been one of the fastest-growing communities for at least a decade in the United States. And so that's been constant for more than 10 years. As I'm always curious about these new folks who moved to Forsyth, um, do they know this history? And did you get a sense that, because, I mean, there's, there, it could be either way. Maybe they don't know the history and they just like the fact that it's out there and it's further away from Atlanta than the last county they were living in. Or maybe they know it and they embrace it, or maybe they know it and they're ambivalent. I mean, what was your sense of, of how, how much they know about Forsyth historically? Let me give a little context to his question. Forsyth County is an exurb an hour north of Atlanta. And in 1912, a girl called May Crow was raped. Some black kids were accused of the rape. One was lynched. And during that year, because of the rape, all the black residents were expelled at the barrel of a gun from the county. So between 1912 and 1980, there were virtually no black residents in Forsyth County, Georgia. And in 1987, some civil rights marchers, mainly from Atlanta, half of whom were black, marched on the county demanding better opportunities for blacks, and it kicked off. They were greeted by the Klan. <laughs> it kicked off a whole new round of racial antagonism, and Oprah came down to heal the place. <laughs> and it didn't work real well, as I, I recall the show. So his question, now it's a booming excerpt. In 2007, it's the 13th wealthiest county in America. And so Tim's question is, are people aware of that history? Yes and no. The old timers, people who've been in that county for generations, are well aware of the history. And it's eerie because the black people who were expelled, I interviewed their descendants, and the descendants know the descendants of the white people who lived in the county at 1912. So yes, the old timers know about the history. And in fact, their relatives were involved in the history in some shape or form. Now the newcomers, folks who've come in from Atlanta and Texas and Houston and all that, uh, the new exurban dwellers, are not aware of the history. You, you know, they're like, oh, this is a beautiful place. It's suburban living with country perks. And they don't know about the history. Yeah, interesting. interesting. Is it my turn to ask a question? If you'd like, or we can go and go to the audience either way. Let me ask a question that is often asked of me during my research and subsequently after my research. And it's a question, well, anyway, I'll field it to Tim. Some white people, even who will call themselves progressives, some who call themselves conservatives, will say, you know, there's a shelf life on 
the goodwill of many other white Americans, never mind my attitude. So their question is, how long will programs and policies of racial redress be necessary? When is enough enough? When can we do away with affirmative action and all the things that you talk about? And they, they're saying, okay, I support it now, but in the future, now that we have a black president, what is the shelf life on this and when can we do away with it? Well, I think, I think, the shelf, I think it expired years ago, actually, because those programs have almost all been eliminated in any functional way. I mean, this is sort of the irony, right, is that people want to act as if we're in this amazingly race-conscious place where we do all of this stuff that targets opportunity to people of color. And the fact is that we've been in a steady retreat from all of those things since 1978 when the Bakke decision was decided. Ever since then, you have more institutions moving away from race-conscious efforts than moving toward them. You even have institutions that legally could continue to do everything that they've been doing in terms of race-conscious recruitment and, and that kind of thing that hasn't been made illegal, but because they're afraid of getting sued by an opportunistic organization, right-wing think tank that goes shopping for plaintiffs to sue people um, in spite of their constant recitation of the need for tort reform, except when they're suing you and then they don't want tort reform. Um, They uh, seem to neglect the fact that most of those things have already been done away with. So I don't know what the shelf life is on justice. I mean, I think that this idea that Sandra Day O'Connor put forward in 03 in the in the uh, uh, Michigan uh, affirmative action cases that you know, she put a 25-year timeline on the continuation of some affirmative action, as minor as it is right now. Um, I think that was just a number she pulled out of the air, frankly. Uh, she has no idea whether or not 25 years will be sufficient to, uh, to, to be able to say that we're actually an equal opportunity society. But what Sandra Day O'Connor probably also knows, and I wish her a very long life, but, you know, is, is that 25 years ain't necessary, you know? She's not going to be seeing that in 25 years, and many of us won't be. And so the reality is that when you try to put a date certain on the end of some type of policy or program intended to provide equal opportunity, you're presuming sort of an inevitable progress that you cannot presume. That's not the way history works. We've taught history that way. That's how we all learned it in high school. It's just linear progress, right? We were a really bad place, and then some really good people got together, and they fixed all that, you know? And it's always this, this bright line chronology, like here's the beginning, and it's always getting better, and it's always getting better. But that's not the way history works. That's not the way history works at all. It's usually two steps forward, three steps back, four steps forward, two more steps back. You know, the history of Reconstruction and then the retrenchment after Reconstruction tells us that. The fact that Jackie Robinson was not the first black professional baseball player in this country, was the first in the modern era, but there were black folks who played professional ball in the 1880s. They got run out of baseball, and it took 60 more years for them to work their way back in. We don't teach that history, and so we teach it as things are always getting better, when in fact they get better and they get worse, they get better and they get worse. So given that, you cannot estimate, you cannot say with any sense of certainty, right, what is going to happen in five years, in ten years. What we do know right now is not only the New York Times article today, but every other study you you choose to consult suggests that the reality on the ground for everyday people of color, not named Barack Obama, right, average everyday folks of color, is utterly different from the experience of a handful of outliers who have become extremely successful and powerful. That is not the norm. It is not the norm for folks of color, just like it is not the norm for working-class white folks from Hope, Arkansas, to become president like Bill Clinton did. Working-class folks and folks of color do not typically end up in that position. And the fact that a few have doesn't tell us anything about social reality. 
And so what we have to do is watch and see. And I don't remember which Supreme Court justice it was that said he, you know, he couldn't define pornography, but he would know it when he sees it, right? Oliver Wendell Holmes or somebody said that. Um, who was it? Potter Stewart. It was, it was, it was Potter Stewart. Uh, wouldn't know pornography, but he didn't know how to define it, but he'd know it when he saw it. Well, I don't know what racial equity looks like because I have never seen it. But I am pretty certain that when I see it, I will be able to identify it, and then I will let you know. And so will many of the other people in this room, I'm sure. So I guess this is the time we go to the audience, right? Yes. Yes? Good? Okay. What's the question? Uh, what are suggestions for dealing with the, the fatigue of talking about this constantly and not always feeling like you're you know, making an impact, getting through, people are listening. How do you deal with that sort of constant grind of having to have the conversation again and again? Oh, uh, well, I, I, well, both. Well, I'll give it a shot, and then, and then uh, Rich can, too. Um, you know, here's the thing, right? Uh, a lot of things make me tired. I got two kids, uh, eight and six, and I get tired of them, right? Um, I get fatigued dealing with them, telling them the same stuff every day that they didn't do the last day. But here's the deal. I don't give up on them. And I got them for at least 10 to 12 more years, and they're going to wear me out. But we don't give up on things that we care about. We don't give up on things that we, you know, our spouses, if we have them, can wear us out, and we can wear them out from time to time. Our kids will do that. Whatever job you have, I don't care what you do in your job. It may not be about this. I happen to have this really sort of good gig where I get to talk about this all the time. You may have some totally different job. Whatever it is you do, you get tired. What I always find interesting is those of us who fight for social justice we somehow have a, di have a more difficult time justifying continuing to plug away than people who do the same job day in and day out for 50 years without really complaining about it or who raise kids, you know, with all the pain that that can be and they don't really complain about it. It's like, you know, those of us who get to do this work and even whether it's professionally or we just get to do it in our spare time, that's a huge gift that we get to do this work, that we get to be involved in a fight for human liberation. And so I think when you recast it in that sense and you start to think about the fact, and you, know, you think about this the older you get, um, when you're young and you don't really think about your mortality that often, some do, some who live in, in, in situations where death is a real possibility even at a young age, do think about it. But most of us don't, particularly those of us who are white, we don't, and those of us who are middle class and above, we don't. As you start to get older, you start to think about it. And one of the things that I started to think about was, and it was about, because I was getting fatigued, you know, I was getting tired, the same arguments all the time, um, was trying to figure out what is the point of the work. If you define the purpose of this work as seeing justice come, and, I, and by that I mean you get to see it with your eyes. Not that it's going to come down the line, because we all hope that'll happen. But if you define the purpose as you getting to personally see it, Two things are certain. Number one, you are going to be disappointed because it isn't likely to happen on your watch. And number two, you're going to get burned out because the insistence that that is the measure of your worth and success is going to make you crazy and it's going to make you frustrated and you're going to feel like a failure. So first you let go of that. First you realize that this is a, is a marathon, not a sprint, and that there have been better and smarter who came before you who were not able to solve the problem. The odds that you will solve the problem also minimal. What you do is you're planting seeds for other people to continue to water. And if you don't do it, you know nothing will change. If you do it, nothing may change. But you know for certain that if you don't, 
that we will be in the same position in 100 years. So once you let go of the need for, for efficacy and victory, which is very hard for privileged people, because privileged people think it's all about, you know, when you have privilege, whether it's race, class, gender, a combination of those, whatever it is, you're used to, you got a problem, by God, we're going to solve it. I got a headache, take a pill, you know. Um, I, I, I want to I uh, lose a certain amount of weight. I'll go get a lap band or liposuction. We'll have solutions for our problems. I'll go to rehab. I'll do whatever I got to do to solve my problem. The reality is people that deal with problems generation in and generation out know that it's never that easy, but they don't give up. Derek Bell said it, you know, in Faces at the Bottom of the Well, said that racism may be a permanent feature of American life. And I remember when that book came out in the early 90s and then I was going around lecturing, white students were getting angry at Professor Bell for saying that. Black folks never got angry at him. Not any that I met. Because black folks would read it and go, yeah, you know what, that sounds about right. White folks heard it and were like, how dare he? How dare he say that it's pro? What do you mean? Well, that's a pessimistic view. No, that's a view that's shaped by hundreds of years of observation. Now, what does Derek Bell say? Does he, as a black man, say, well, it's never going to go away, so therefore let's give up? No, what he says is it isn't about that. He says there's redemption and struggle. That's the purpose. You're here for a very short time. If you're lucky, you get 100 years. A little bit less lucky, you get 90, maybe 80. I got a grandmother that's 93, and she doesn't have much longer to go. I'm 41. I could go tomorrow. You have to figure out in the little bit of time that you're here how you're going to justify the oxygen that you stole from other creatures because other people could have used it. And so if you cannot justify your time on the earth by way of the life you lived, then why are you here? Why are you here? And so you just keep at it. I, I, I'd like to take a, a quick crack at the question that's asked. What do we do with racial fatigue? I think, and I agree with a lot of what Tim just said, but I think it's also how we have the conversation. There are dynamics to this conversation which I even grow tired of. And so how can you blame other people from growing tired of? For example, the conversation of why do all the black kids sit at the cafeteria table today how did Mary Sue get with her Asian-American boyfriend? Da-da-da-da-da. You know, the warm, fuzzy, can-we-get-along therapeutic angle of sensitivity and race. I'm tired of that conversation, or at least the way that conversation plays out in the media. And so one of the smart things that OSI does, for example, is to have a different, more productive, more interesting conversation that is not being had. A conversation around incarceration, a conversation around drug use, etc. And what I've tried to do in my book, with some success, is to have a conversation around demographics and how we live. Because some of the exurbanites who I met in Whiteopia would say, I just want my kids to go to the best schools. I just want my community to be safe. I just want to maintain my property values. But to have a different conversation on how real estate, neighborhoods, public funding, zoning, public transportation shakes out and keeps this country looking the way it does racially and by class, that's a conversation that you can't say you're tired of because I'm not sure how it exists intelligently anywhere else. So the concise answer to your question is the type of conversation we have and the type of conversations we let go. And I think OSI deserves a lot of credit for that. I seem to think that there is much more institutional and systemic racism involved in the way this, this white, uh, that's this stuff, 
works. I can put on a blazer and walk down the street, or I can turn my hat around and show my tats, maybe not the Jewish one, and I can fit in, I can fit in with almost anyone. You seem to think that there wasn't institutional racism, yet I've been out of work six months, and I'll bet you, you put on one of my tees, we'll go down to where I used to work, and guess who gets the job? So, I got the job. I got the job. And I just don't think that there's any room to say that racial fatigue or systemic institutional racism has gone away because the people that are tired of it are the people that are sitting on those of us on the bottom. And if they're tired, then get the hell up and get the hell out of the way. So, so the, the question is... Could you... Both of you. Well, Both I, mean, of I, can you. Comment. I can comment on your qu comment. Systemic institutional racism. Yeah. I don't care how tired they are. Right. We need affirmative action forever. There, there's, there's an entire chapter on the book that points out, plain as day, based on the journey, how structural racism works. How do you build public transportation? How do you not build public transportation? How do you zone a community? How do you not zone a community? How does a chamber of commerce operate? How does a chamber of commerce not operate? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So really, paint by numbers, there's just one chapter that spells it out according to my journey, according to my interviews. So nowhere in the book does it say structural racism is over. And I wasn't implying that people or even myself are tired of that conversation. I was saying that we're tired of the Oprah angle, therapeutic, right. sensitive, sensitivity training element of racial conversations. Can't we all just get along? I mean, kids, I, I teach in universities, and many kids are rightfully bored by what their multicultural officers in those universities are putting together in these workshops that are, A, decades outdated, yeah. and B, not relevant to their lived reality. Never mind that they don't address immigration, or they don't address class, or they don't address these panoply of issues. So I was never saying that structural racism was over, or the fatigue was over structural racism. I was saying the fatigue was over a different type of conversation. Yeah, okay. okay. Uh, I just wanted to put a, a finer point on, your, on what you just said with my question about institutional racism versus just the general term racism in general, uh, because it seems to me that uh, the American public overall doesn't understand what institutional racism is. You know, it, it, they, they still have an idea of, and rightly so, you know, segregation and Jim Crow. But the whole idea of institutional racism and how do we effectively uh, explain that process to the public in general. And I wanted to uh, ask in the context of uh, public education and also the criminal justice system. Do you want to go first? Um, I mean, it's never easy to explain institutional reality to the American people because we have a profoundly anti-systemic tendency in terms of the way we analyze everything. So for most people, the first time they are ever introduced, if ever, to a systemic analysis, in fact, even to an analysis that says there are systems, is in a college sociology class. And if you don't ever take one, either because you don't take that class or you don't go to college, you may never be exposed to a systemic analysis. So even if you got a sense that there are systems out there, it's like this 
amorphous thing. You can't really get your head around it. You can't really explain it to yourself or others. So you get stuck in that interpersonal therapeutic, as you said, that sort of Oprah mode of everything's individuality and are we getting along and racism is interpersonal and not structural. So number one, we have to do a much better job in schools generally, starting at a very early age, talking about systems, class systems, gender systems, race systems, systems of sexual oppression, systems of, you know, all the different systems that exist um, and, and how they're interrelated. And so that has to be done within the schools. It also has to, um, however, I think, involve one thing that's a little simpler than that, which is when I talk about racism and I try to give a sense of what it is, I just ask people sort of for their own reaction is, you know, when you hear a word that ends with ISM, any word that's an ism, uh, what is it? And this is grammar. See, one of the ways you get out of the sort of ideological philosophical dispute is to break words down to their basic components. And when you look at a word like racism and you think about other isms like capitalism, socialism, communism, fascism, authoritarianism, totalitarianism, what you know about all those words that I just said is that they are two things by definition. They are ideologies and they are systems. They are not one or the other. They are both. So there is an ideology that is behind capitalism, but it's also a way of organizing your economic structure or, as capitalists would have it, not organizing your economic structure. Right? Communism is an ideology. It's also a system. Fascism is an ideology. It's also a system. And if that's true for those other isms, it must be true for racism. So then the question then asked of the person once they've recognized that is, well, then what is racism at the system level? If it is a system by grammar, by definition it must be, then what is it? And, of course, what it is is a system of inequality based on race. See, now, if you're asking the question that way of people, which is different than giving them didactic instruction... It's one thing to stand up and say, racism is institutional oppression of people of color under a system of white supremacy. It's quite another, which is true, by the way, but it's quite another, it's quite another to, to ask somebody a series of questions which leave them with almost no other answer but that one. Well, if these are systems because they're isms, then is racism a system? Yes. Well, then if so, what is it? And then we have to get into a discussion of how it operates. With regard to the schools and the criminal justice system, it operates, obviously, both by formal and informal mechanisms. The thing about institutional racism is it can be blatant, which is what segregation was, it's what um, uh, extrajudicial lynching was, it's what enslavement was, it's what Indian removal was, it's what uh, uh, Japanese internment was, the theft of half of Mexico in a war of aggression started by our country on false pretense, it's what that was. Um, but they're also informal mechanisms. And I sometimes think it's easier to start with the informal, right, and sort of work backwards. Because if there's fatigue, it's on that formal stuff, right? People are tired of talking about uh, that, that stuff, that horrible past. We love the past when it makes us look good. We actually dig it a lot. You know, that's what July 4th is, in case you all hadn't paid attention. Those fireworks are about loving living in the past, right? We just don't want to deal with the past when it's sort of ugly. But if you deal with the informal piece first... You sort of do an end run around that. What are the informal mechanisms? Well, in the job market, the informal mechanism of institutional racism is networking, right? The fact that if you are a person of color or a working class person of any color, the odds are very good that you're not going to be in the same network for the best jobs as people who are, number one, white, and number two, if they are middle class and above, particularly upper middle class. So you could be the most qualified person for a position, and by the way, a woman of any race or, 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 or class background, but be excluded from the competition from the, from the start because of institutional factors that are important to getting those jobs. It isn't about bigotry, 
Might be, but it might not be. It could just be that the way that we fill jobs is that. The way that we uh, get an awful lot of slots in colleges are through alumni donations, uh, alumni preferences. There was a study from two years ago which found that for every student of color who has received any assistance at all from affirmative action in getting into a college, that for every one of those, there are two whites. So it's a two-to-one ratio. Two whites for every one kid of color. Two whites who got in, even though they had lower scores and, and, and grades, than the norm, but they had parents who had connections, made phone calls, made a donation, were alums of the school. Um, so that's a form of institutional racism. Is that because the schools are sitting around and the presidents are saying, how can we structure our school to keep black people out? There might be people like that, but I'm willing to grant for the sake of argument that's not normal. What is normal, however, is that we have what sociologists call a functional system. It works for those who count and who have always counted. And as long as it works for those who count, the ones who count won't change it. Right? So I think it's this informal stuff which is so insidious. In the justice system, it's not just the overt bias. It's some of the implicit biases that we have, um, which the research now suggests that, you know, that the overwhelming majority of white folks, for example, associate black and brownness with criminality and with deviance. Although overtly, on measures of overt prejudice, those individuals won't test positive for that. You won't have overt bias necessarily, but there's this implicit bias. 95% of whites say that when they're asked in a, in a focus group to picture a typical drug dealer, a tr- drug user, not even dealer, drug user, 95% of whites say they picture a black person, even though black folks are 13% and no more than that of the drug users in the United States. Non-Hispanic whites are 71%. Um, but the typical white person, 95% of white people, in fact, think the opposite. Is that about overt hatred? No, it's about a process of institutionalized racism in media where the images that we're seeing give us that impression, right? Where even shows that attempt to show, and I'm not going to name names, but I think you know where I'm going with this, shows that attempt to show this more in-depth and compassionate and realistic side of poor black life in the United States still oftentimes reinforce the very stereotypes about black families that other shows that didn't have that mentality reinforced for years, and yet they're seen as so fundamentally different when I'm not altogether sure, because when all I see is black parents in those same programs that seem pathological and seem like they have not a good bone in their body and no care for their children, I start wondering about just how different they are, right? No matter how much they're applauded and said how brilliant they are, and I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, This kind of insidious, constant repetition of imagery, which is not deliberate, gives impressions to people, gives people impressions that they then will take out as they make policy. And I think that that's what's happening in many cases in this country that's institutional, not necessarily about interpersonal stuff. I'm going to offer a simpler take on, on, on your question. The difficulty of talking about institutional, structural, racial problems versus interpersonal problems You recall a famous professor was arrested inside his home last summer, and he taught at Harvard. President Barack Obama started to talk about this and the issue of racial profiling, and you asked about criminal justice, but then he backtracked. And then by the time the episode was finished, he made it sound like two men were just good, ordinary human beings who had an interpersonal spat, and if they just had a beer in the Rose Garden things would be get better. So that's just a concrete illustration of how people, including the president, backtrack from a more nuanced, systemic conversation about public education or incarceration because of ideology, because of systems, because of all sorts of things. 
So it's quite common. Uh, you talk of uh, the racism as if black and brown peoples were, uh, had solidarity. Uh, what do you think of the relationships between Latinos and blacks and what will happen as blacks become a minority within the minority? I guess they're there already. Um, what do I think about the relationships? They're changing. I think there's room for a lot of optimism in the sense that black coalitions and Latino coalitions have helped elect black and Latino mayors in various cities across the country. The examples are numerous. So I think there's room for optimism in that sense. And I think Latino people have historically been on the forefront of civil rights struggles, just like in some cases black leaders have been on the forefront of immigration struggles. For me, that's the room for optimism. The room for pessimism is in a souring economy, these racial issues flare up. And I see them daily, firsthand in my life, by virtue of the neighborhoods I've lived in. I've lived in Harlem. I've lived in Brooklyn. I've lived in the Mission District of San Francisco. And when black communities butt up against Latino communities, there become language issues and cultural issues and some of the similar issues that come up when white communities butt up against Latino communities. So we have plenty of examples on the one hand of political progress and reconciliation and help among these communities, but we also have examples where, especially in a souring economy, there's ugly social tension. And I would agree with all of that. And the only thing I would add to it, I really want you to think about this because it speaks to this criminal justice issue that OSI deals with. I find it really fascinating that one of the most common practices in our prisons is to segregate prisoners, black, Latino, and white, in the name of so-called security, which I understand initially you may say, well, there's beef between these folks in some of these prisons, so you have to do that. But then there's nothing done within those walls to take those inmates, most of whom are going to come back out, and actually address some of this issue of solidarity as opposed to the enmity that they have with one another. What they all have in common is they're all poor. Because if they weren't poor, they wouldn't be in that prison. So if we began to then talk to prisoners and to inmates about their commonality of interest, both inside and outside, instead of sowing that division, because I think the guards and the wardens in those prisons keep those people divided to keep them fearing one another, to keep them angry at one another, so that when they go back on the outside, they won't have any solidarity, and they'll come right back to them. Because that's how prisons stay in business, is by having people come back. You don't stay in business if they go out and get jobs and become productive members of the society. So we need to really ask ourselves why it is that no one is talking about, when we talk about rehabilitation of inmates, you know, what do we do? Well, we say we're going to teach them job skills. Okay, that's fine. Um, a lot of times, of course, we give them jobs that then used to be union jobs on the outside, so they end up essentially, those folks lose their jobs, then they become poor, then they end up going to prison, so it becomes this weird cycle. But more importantly, if rehabilitation doesn't include this social component, this component that says, wait a minute, you guys who've been killing each other, fighting each other outside and in, have a hell of a lot more in common with each other than you got with the guards, and that you've got with the warden, and you got with the people who made the laws that put you in here. So the question then is, whose side are you going to be on? But they're afraid to have that conversation. We have got to push that conversation, because as long as you've got black and brown and white, 
working class being divided against one another based on oh, you're a member of this gang and you're a member of that gang. There isn't even any room for you if you're a person who doesn't buy into that mentality. If you're a Latino who is not down with that and, and not in you know, MS-13 or if you're a uh, 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 black and you're not down with whatever black gang is in that prison and if you're white and you're not down with the Aryan Brotherhood gang, you don't even have a place to go in that prison because the idea that they would actually talk about solidarity and allyship across racial lines is totally foreign to them. So part of this beef is manufactured, and I think it's manufactured quite intentionally, not as part of a conspiracy, mind you, but as part of a functional analysis. It works to keep things moving as they're moving. You keep people fighting one another so they don't pay attention to who really has all the stuff, right? And that's the deeper issue, which we need to be talking about in our criminal justice reform efforts, I think. How y'all doing? I want to get uh, both of y'all feedback. Uh, My research come to find out that race is illusion because basically it's not part of biological trait. And um, we're dealing with everybody here, basically it's like, a, it's like a crayon box, all these different colors, but we made out of the same things. And we need to look at that issue and take the word race and all other words, racism, racial profiling, out your vocabulary, and that'll help people focus and stop calling people with different colors, like black, white, whatever, to say we have different flesh tones. Once you say that, you take the color out of the equation. And I want to look at y'all feedback on it. I think that's an interesting academic argument among geneticists. I think in people's lived reality, it doesn't play out so kindly. I mean, just ask immigrants who are attacked in, let's say, Pachogue, New York, a suburb Marcelo Luciano killed explicitly as an immigrant. I don't think he would tell you race is a social construct. Right. I, I, yeah, I agree. I mean... Yes, it is, but that's a, that's a fundamental academic point. It's a scientific point. And the analogy that I would use is, you know, in Salem, Massachusetts in 1692, there were no witches, but there were a lot of men who thought there were. And because there were men who thought that certain women were witches, women died. And so the fact that biologically they were not supernatural, they could not levitate, they did not cast spells, they were not witches, didn't matter. All that mattered was the, the idea that the oppressor class had in its mind that they knew who they were. And so we can say that race is not real, but if people experience racism, regardless, like anti-witchism was real, whether witches were real or not. People could say, well, we're just going to stop calling it that. Women still die. And so the fact that we're all members of a Crayola box, but some of those crayons are, you know, given more opportunity and have more access, doesn't matter what we call it. We can say flesh tone. We can say color. We can say race. I'm not really sure that the linguistics of it are what determine the reality of it. The reality is what determined the linguistics. The terms were actually created after the reality was put in place, not the other way around. It's not like we came up with the word white and black and then from that created oppression. We created oppression and then put labels on what we were doing. The oppression was first, though. Once you change that, you can change the paradigm, right? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's how... I I don't think change happens by changing the word that we use. We've changed words for people before. So you have, you know, half of black folks will use the term African-American. Maybe half will continue with black. We've, you know, black folks have been a lot of different things. If you've lived long enough, the terminology has changed. The system has not changed. And so I think that, you know, it's not that you shouldn't change the words. 
It's just that I don't think that is a tool that in and of itself can, can end, you, you, whether you call it racial profiling, the fact that we, that we tell a cop, oh, you know what, that black person is 99.999% just like you, and all the cop knows is that he sees in his mind that that person is more dangerous. The fact that they're genetically the same doesn't matter. I can tell a kid, uh, this is why Angela Davis doesn't like to do Black History Month events, because every time she goes, she talks about people wanting to talk about great black people in history. Right? And she says, I don't want to do that. Even if y'all think I am one, I don't want to do that. Because all that is is exceptionalism. You can tell young people about all these great black people, all these great brown folk. You can change the language. And what they will say is, yeah, but there's 5,000 of them on the other side of town that I don't think too much about. Right? That I actually look down on, regardless of whether it's genetic, cultural, or just I don't like the way they act. Whatever it is, they'll come up with another reason. So I think the terminology is interesting. And I think it is important to point out that race is biologically a fiction. I think that's a valid point to make. But it's not going to be a panacea for dealing with racism, which has never been about scientific truth anyway. It's always been based on a fiction, but it's killed a lot of people. It's killed a lot of people. I'm not so much interested in an ism, and I do feel like I should defend Oprah, but she doesn't need to be defended. Um, This weekend, uh, some folks invited themselves to the White House for the state dinner, and they happened to... Uh, the wife was very classically tall, blonde, and pretty. My question, what was your reaction, each of you, when you first learned of that story and, and saw who it was that did the crashing? Uh, because the conversation in a lot of black society is if it was my husband that did that crashing, he'd be in jail right now. So I'd like to hear your reaction. I mean, I don't know your husband. Um, but I, I, I dispute that assumption. I think I've, I've crashed fancy. I'll tell you. The time I met um, Ralph Ellison, the author of Invisible Man, just before he passed away, we had this fascinating conversation about his life in Oklahoma. He saw the sweep of 20th century racial history. It was the National Book Awards. Stephen King was being awarded, and I crashed that party. It's not the White House, but I crashed it. I think that's an example of where you have class and race intermixed. Um, I think the right black couple may have crashed that also. I don't know. Um, and, and, here, and here's why I don't know. Um, I mean, it could be. But this is the thing about racism, okay? And this is the thing about privilege. It isn't always going to play out every time. But the fact that we have to have that conversation, even ask that question, suggests there's some underlying social truth to which you're speaking and which those individuals could feel fairly confident in spite of the fact that, correct me if I'm wrong, what's their last name? Right. This is a name that could easily be perceived as being, quote-unquote, Middle Eastern, right? So, again, I'm thinking, interesting, in spite of that, in spite of all the paranoia we have about so-called Middle Eastern folk, so uh, what, Persian or, or just, uh, quote-unquote, Arab folk, people who might be Muslim, God forbid that, right? In spite of that, they weren't even on the lookout, right? And, and if these were, like, folks that had an X at the end of their name because they were members of the Nation of Islam, somebody would have stopped them. Uh, probably pretty early on, and it would have been seen very differently in retrospect. I think what's interesting to me is that it's not so much whether they would have been stopped had they been black or whether they would be arrested now and in jail already if they were black. What's interesting is, is that these two individuals apparently never thought twice about their ability to do this because the fact that Rich has crashed parties, and there are lots of black folks who have crashed parties before and, and brown folk who have crashed parties, But my guess is there may be, and maybe not for Rich, but there may be some more intentionality behind how you do that. Whereas these folks just seem to think, the hell, man, I'm just going to walk in like I did last month at the Congressional Black Caucus dinner, 
because I could crash that one too. It's like just this idea that I can go wherever I want and wherever I am, I belong. And how dare you challenge me on it? And today, if you heard the, the wife, uh, uh, right, she said, everything I've worked for in my 44 years, I'm not sure what that is, but everything she's worked for has been destroyed, destroyed because she has been thought of as a party crasher, right? As opposed to people of color who have a little bit more on their mind and working class white folks who have a little bit more on their mind than being thought of as a party crasher, you know? And so to me, it's their mentality that's interesting. Not so much that we can predict what would have happened, but what was going through their head or more importantly, what wasn't. And yeah, what I mean, of course, with racial profiling and with what people in Muslim communities have faced, they are profiled as a constant internal security threat. I mean, nobody's arguing against that. <clears throat> the point is that they're way more... And it's not just me. There's a, there's a great play called uh, Six Degrees of Separation where a black man pretends to be Sidney Poitier's son and gains access to all sorts of fancy white parties and it's privileges based on, story, right? based on a true story. So, I mean, in that particular case, I don't know what that proves racially. And I don't know. There are whole issues of celebrity and privilege and all that that I don't know what, I mean, how that's useful drawing this case. I think there are more important, better cases to draw about race relations in this country than that. Well, I, I want to thank, uh, on behalf of the Open Society Institute and the, and the Pratt Library, um, thank uh, Rich Benjamin and Tim Weiss. I know that at the Open Society Institute, a lot of our work is really focused on institutional racism, and particularly the nexus with poverty and racism. And I certainly learned a lot tonight, because it's very difficult for us to figure out what the right language is. And what sometimes seems clear to a lot of us is very difficult for others to grasp. And I think the discussion that we had tonight, particularly the part about institutional racism and how we in America don't always have the chance to think about systemic systems, uh, is, it was really illuminating for me. I also think that uh, these discussions, among other things, are such a wonderful opportunity to really hear from people who've thought long and carefully and in a nuanced way about these issues. But it also kind of models for all of us just the effort it takes, the persistence it takes, and um, the, the, the kind of risk you have to personally take just to engage in these conversations. And I know it certainly has encouraged me to do more, and I do hope that we go from these large groups to smaller groups um, and continue, just like we saw with Sherilyn and, uh, uh, and Gwen Eiffel, and now tonight, this ex kind of conversation is so rich, and I hope that we all have the advantage of, of, of participating in it ourselves. Now, I want to tell you a couple things. Um, our next event is actually going to be one of the famous Stoop stories, and it's going to focus on race. It's February 22nd. In contrast to this, all these other events which have been free, this one actually does... Uh, sell tickets, and the tickets go really, really quickly. So if you're interested, go to stoopstories.com and do it right away so that you're assured of a seat. Uh, it will be at center stage, and I think it will really be something that will be a wonderful and very compelling evening. Um, we're also happy to tell you that our two presenters tonight will be signing books if you're interested. It's right behind where we're sta I'm standing, so please take advantage of that. And thank you so very much for joining us tonight.